when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be looking at the latest developments in the EU referendum, including whether Boris Johnson and Michael Gove are right about sovereignty, and why the Labour Party has been absent from the debate so far. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political commentator, Philip Stevens, Andrew Jimson, who's a contributing editor at Conservative Home and biographer of Boris Johnson, and Aisha Havazika, who's a former special advisor to Harriet Harman and now a political commentator too. Thank you all for joining. So we'll begin by returning once again to the EU referendum and whether Brexit could lead to more sovereignty for Britain. Michael Gove and Boris Johnson seem to think so, but David Cameron does not. So Philip, I'm going to begin because you've tackled this issue head on your column this week and you think Boris is wrong on sovereignty. So if we leave the EU, Britain will not suddenly become sovereign once again. Why? Well, sovereignty is an elusive concept and one has to, I think, there's a purist view of sovereignty which says, Sovereignty is the capacity to, for self-government to make all one's own decisions. And if you accept that, then Boris is right, of course. Except in the modern world, in fact, in the world for the last two or three hundred years, notional sovereignty doesn't deliver what I would call real sovereignty or power. No country can exist in a complete vacuum. The authority the capacity to act of governments is constrained by the international environment. So to take the sort of simple example, Boris cast on a desert island would be entirely sovereign and entirely powerless. So governments always make treaties. And every time you make a treaty, I mean, you know, at the height, the heyday of empire, the British government made lots and lots of treaties because it took the view that in order to advance the national interest, It was better sometimes you used a gunboat, but sometimes you cut a deal with people. And if you like, the EU is that writ large. It's the most complex, the most extensive, the most expansive treaty, if you like, that we've signed. But at the end of the day, it's a way to enhance our power, our capacity to act, to promote the national interest. And then actually, we're still sovereign because the House of Commons could vote tomorrow to repeal the 1972 European Communities Act. If the House of Lords agreed, we could be out of the European Union by the end of next week. So in that absolute sense, we remain sovereign. What we do is we delegate sovereign powers to the European Union. We don't give them permanently. Well, Andrew Jimson, this has been a key point for Boris Johnson because one of the things that was produced by Downing Street to try and get him to campaign for in was this sovereignty bill, which we've yet to see what the details are and exactly what it is. But he clearly decided that that wasn't enough or 
He was being very nakedly ambitious here and strategy putting himself in the out campaign here. And where is Boris's take on this, do you think? There are two very serious problems for Boris with sovereignty. One is that he doesn't really believe in it himself. So when he talks about it, he sounds unconvincing. The second is that it's not actually a particularly popular thing. Although we don't want the Germans and the French telling us what to do, Parliament actually, and politicians generally, if you say we're sticking up for a lot of MPs at Westminster, I'm afraid that is not. That might increase Boris's following among Conservative MPs, but I don't think it will resonate very widely, at least once you start using this abstract word sovereignty um, with the wider public. And of course, the, the question everyone's been watching this week is what role is Boris going to play in the campaign? So Michael Gove has already struck up by saying, um, the Cameron's New Deal could be repelled by instantly by Brussels. We'll, we'll come on to that in a moment. But there is a question about what Boris is actually going to do in the referendum. He's made his point. Is he going to duck out, do you think, or is he going to take a more forward view in the campaign? Yes, and it's not only that. It's what, in what spirit is he going to campaign? Is he going to campaign as the outside of the maverick, the man who can't see an apple cart without wanting to overturn it? the sort of, sort of Britain's answer to Donald Trump, or is he going to try and reassure people that actually it would be perfectly safe and, in fact, it's more risky to stay in this thing to co- than to come out and life will continue as normal and it will be even more placid if we come out. These are two completely different messages. And, of course, the Donald Trumpish one is the one which would come naturally to him, but I don't know. what I, he, he possibly very likely doesn't even know himself, actually, what he's going to do because Boris likes to do what seems like a good idea at the time. To that point, actually, that actually, I mean, Andrew's sort of divide there mirrors the divide in the overall Leave campaign, because on the one hand, you have the sort of UKIP grassroots based campaign, which is basically, you know, let's rebel against the political classes, against immigration, whatever. And then you have the more placid vote Leave, which is basically the Tory Eurosceptics on the other side who are saying, no, no, everything will be as you say, more placid and better if we go out. So Boris is sitting on another fence now, having jumped off one, between the sort of vote leave Tory and the populist leave EU. Yes, he's stuck on the fence. And part of his trouble is that Cameron, as usual, very astutely has occupied the ground on which the fence stands, the middle ground. And Cameron has said, look, this is the best deal we're going to get. Boris says, I would get you a better deal. But it's a distressingly similar message from Boris's point of view. There isn't really very much differentiation. And flinging in the word sovereignty doesn't produce that. So you've obviously you've written our, the book on Boris Johnson, uh, which has gone through one or two iterations. I'm sure there'll be another one coming in the very last one. And in your last version of your biography of Boris, you said he could be the Merry England candidate. Yes. If England finds itself in troubling times and it wants a sort of Churchillian, Reaganite figure to take the country forward, he could be that man. Do you think that's going to happen after the referendum? Because there's a certain sense amongst the Tory party that the next leader is going to be from the Leave campaign, someone who campaigned for Leave, even if we don't leave, because they were, you know, quote, true to their principles and all the rest of it. Um, Do you think he's likely to be the next Prime Minister and succeed David Cameron? Well, not since 1955, when Anthony Eden succeeded Churchill, has the obvious front-runner, the long-term front-runner, come through and won, even when Heath won, Maudling, to begin with, was slightly ahead of him. So who knows? Predicting the next Tory leader, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to attempt, but very, very difficult in practice to do because people like John Major and Margaret Thatcher were not thought to have really any realistic prospect of the leadership until very shortly before they actually got it. So someone like that might come through and snatch it from Boris. On the other hand, he is the Merry England candidate. You're quite right. He, he has a capacity to cheer people up and to reach people either in the street or through the medium of television, which I think no other present Conservative MP possesses.
What do you think about this idea, Philip, that, you know, Boris could be this sort of kind of happy-go-lucky Woodhousian figure as Prime Minister after David Cameron? Or do you think it's more likely to be someone a bit more kind of George Osborne, technocrat straightforward? Well, I suppose in a way he is the sort of acceptable version of Nigel Farage, as it were, the more genial and perhaps, a, you know, a little less obsessive. But actually, I'm not sure. I think the British people have a nose for sort of naked ambition as it were, and all politicians are ambitious. The question is where the balance lies between personal ambition and, if you like, you could call it a vision for the country, a programme. I think what, you know, Boris's vision is whatever will suit his personal ambition. I mean, I think, you know, one shouldn't overemphasise the personal in politics, but sometimes it really is there. Boris thinks that David Cameron is his intellectual inferior. Boris has never forgiven David Cameron for getting a first at Oxford while he, Boris, only got a second. Boris wants to be prime minister to, if you like, expunge, expiate that past, as it were. And I think he'll do anything to get the job. I have a hunch the British people, or perhaps they would if the Labour Party didn't have Jeremy Corbyn, they would see through this. Depends so much what kind of person we want, whether we want a continuity candidate, someone who carries on the, in some ways, successful work that the present government is doing, or, or whether in, in turbulent times we need someone who can react very quickly to events. And Boris does have that capacity, both as a journalist and as a politician. If the story changes, he changes his position in the twinkling of an eye. And a lot of even quite seasoned politicians, they try and stick to their existing orthodox, to the carcass of dead policies, as Lord Salisbury put it, long after those policies have ceased really to apply. So just on to the referendum more generally this week, Philip, um, it's, it's hard to say that anyone's particularly got any momentum at the moment, and neither is there much going on elsewhere in politics. But uh, Lord Howard, Michael Howard, a former Conservative leader, I think is the only other living Tory leader who is backing the out campaign. Do you think that's a surprise at all? And what does that mean for the dynamics in the party? I don't think it's a surprise because, well, partly I've talked to Michael Howard over the years and I think his position has not really changed since the 1990s when John Major famously characterised Michael and some others in his uh, cabinet as, quotes bastards. So I don't think it's a surprise. I don't think it'll really change much. I mean, Michael Howard, you know, to put it frankly, he's a very clever man, good politician. He's not a natural vote winner. I think the most interesting thing about this week, the opening of the campaign, has been the energy and the authority that the Prime Minister has shown. You cannot, you could not, listening to him this week, making the European case in a Heseltinian way, I would say. It's hard to think this was the chap only a couple of weeks ago who was saying, well, look, I'll walk away. I think he's uh, Cameron, who, as Prime Minister, has his faults, is quite a good campaigner. He's found his mission as it were. This is about his legacy as much as anything else. And he's very, very good. He put down Boris in the House of Commons. He put down Jeremy Corbyn very well this week. And I think he's going to enjoy the next three or four months. He knows exactly how to run this kind of campaign. I mean, he, he, he learned it from Oxford. While Boris went into journalism and made a great name for himself as correspondent in Brussels, making fun of the European Union, Cameron went into the Conservative Research Department, learnt how to do politics properly, saw John Major getting into deep trouble, acquired a group of professionally trained people like Ed Llewellyn, and also from the Research Department, Oliver Letwin and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
and they together know how to do this kind of thing and how to say, look, stick with us, it's safer. I think it's very impressive from Shud Grianju that when you see the Prime Minister at his full capacity, when he really is not in his, when he's in his essay crisis mode, he is very persuasive. And I suppose, although it hates to come down to this, it, this, this contract is in some ways going to be play out Cameron versus Boris. And it's a match that has been waiting for quite a long time. I think based on what you've seen this week, Cameron certainly seems to have the upper hand in that. He does at the moment. Something might go wrong with him, but it's difficult at the moment to see how Boris is going to get into the game. On the other hand, you know, Boris, Gove is a very clever man. Dominic Cummings is, has rows with people, but he who used to work for Gove and is now at the heart of this whole thing, he's a very clever fellow. They will have some shots in their locker to try and um, shake the Financial Times' orthodoxy, which the Prime Minister has now swung round towards. That may indeed unsettle some voters. And now on to Labour, which, as you may have noticed, has been a little bit absent from the referendum debate this week. In the House of Commons, Jeremy Corbyn did not seem particularly engaged when he was speaking to the Prime Minister. And the EU debate in the House of Commons essentially has seemed to have come down to whether Jeremy Corbyn is wearing his tie properly and jokes about prospective mothers of the party leaders. So, Aisha, looking from this from outside the Labour Party, it looks the sense that the leadership doesn't seem to care that much about the referendum. I think the leadership finds itself very conflicted over what to do with this because their heart is just not in it, basically. They don't really want to be chumming up with the Conservatives and Sir Stuart rules. Part of that is ideological. Part of it as well is that we are all scarred by the heavy price Labour played in Scotland for um, doing the Better Together campaign. I think ultimately Jeremy Corbyn is going to just do the absolute bare minimum to look like he's supportive. And I think they will lean in on social chapter arguments, employment right arguments, very much the sort of comfort zone left wing arguments. And I think it will be left to Alan Johnson to do the heavy lifting of trying to really persuade Labour voters of the broader case. Because, Philip, if you were looking at the referendum through papers and TV this week, in some senses it would seem like Alan Johnson is almost leading Labour in a sense because Jeremy Corbyn has just not been anywhere in this debate, which seems really quite mad if you think of Ed Miliband. He would have been front and centre of this debate, or even Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, who are all passionate Eurofowers. But part of it must be that Mr Corbyn is a bit more sceptical of Europe. Yes, I think there are two things here. I think the European debate, as we've all seen, is about an argument within the Tory party. And that's a much more exciting argument between David Cameron and his own party than the differences between parties. So there's that element to it. And the Labour Party, of course, is having a fight with itself, but over other things like the Trident nuclear missiles. But behind all this as well lies the fact, and I would say, I think with some confidence, that were Jeremy Corbyn left to his own devices, as it were, he would vote to come out. He's been consistently opposed. He's, an, if you like, an old lefty, a Benite from the 70s, who believes that the European Union is a capitalist plot against the working classes. So I think he is rather reluctant. He's decided that he can't fight his party on the economy, on Trident and on Europe. So he's rather reluctantly gone along with the pro-European view, but he's not got his heart in it at all. I also think that Jeremy is possibly not for those reasons, but also his reach is very metropolitan and he appeals well, especially with young people and in particularly in London. 
One of the reasons Harriet Harman actually appointed Alan Johnson last summer to do this role of leading Labour in the campaign was that Alan was seen as somebody who could reach out, particularly to those working class voters in the North. He was not seen as part of the establishment club, but he was somebody who was definitely committed in his heart to Europe. And I think, I suspect there will be a bit of a battle in the Labour Party soon between how far Alan goes and how comfortable Corbyn is with Alan. I think this is a very interesting point here because there was this talk that Hilary Benn and Angelica went to see Mr Corbyn and said to him, look, you know, if we're going to serve in your shadow cabinet, you're going to have to campaign in because, as Philip just said, his natural instincts are much more of the Eurosceptic tendency. Um, but that is going to be picked up at some point, you know, because this is occupying politics. You know, you have to admit there's absolutely nothing else going on in Westminster at the moment apart from the referendum. So he can talk as much about Trident as he wants. But at some point, he's going to be in an interview or something and he's going to have to deal head on with nothing but the referendum. That is going to be a problem for him. I absolutely agree with that. And I think he fundamentally remains opposed to what the European Union has become. I think the only way he can comfortably get through these arguments are saying, look, we've just got to cling on to the EU because we get these fantastic employment rights in the EU. And in a way, the difficulty with that argument is it does play into the argument about sovereignty that the Brexit people have. Their argument is, look, you don't need Europe to give you all these really good laws. You should trust your own UK Parliament and your own MPs to give you those laws. So I think it's going to, at the moment, all the focus is understandably on the soap opera that's just erupted in the Conservative Party. But I think there are problems definitely down the track for the Labour Party. And remember, UKIP has come second in the general election in a lot of important places in the North for Labour. And I think Labour strategists will be very worried about the knock-on effect of Labour being seen too close to the rich man's club that is the Remain campaign. Well, on that point, just on that point, I was talking to a, I better not say his name, a, a Labour MP from a northern constituency the other day who said, uh, to your point, that Tony Blair had a much greater, easier rapport with the working class constituents in his constituency, the so-called right wing Tony Blair, than Jeremy Corbyn does. They look at Jeremy Corbyn and they see this sort of metropolitan lefty, completely divorced, he, this MP said from their day-to-day concerns. And he made exactly this point that what he worries about is his supporters going to UKIP. I think this couldn't be better pictured, Philip, that tomorrow, which is the uh, Saturday, you're you're listening to this podcast, is the first full weekend of the EU referendum campaign. A lot of Labour MPs have been strong-armed to hitting the stump to go out and campaign for this, while Mr Corbyn is going to be addressing a CND rally in the centre of London. Now, it's obviously a cause that's very close to his heart. But when you look at those northern seats, those people who have genuine questions about the referendum and look to Labour for leadership, And Jeremy Corbyn is addressing Trident. Now, I'm not belittling Trident as an issue, but it does show about what his concerns are and his views on the referendum, doesn't it? I think it does. I mean, he that's the battle he does want to fight within the Labour Party. And I think one of the reasons he's, if you like, acquiesced in in a pro-European position is that he's choosing his fights and Trident is the big fight. But I think there is a bigger problem behind all this. We have two Labour parties to be, you know, let's be upfront about this now. We have the party with all the new members 
which elected Jeremy Corbyn and still, as far as one can see, supports him. And we have the party at Westminster, where perhaps 15 or 20 are enthusiastic supporters of Mr Corbyn and the rest aren't. And that division is going to be very absolutely clear on Trident. Absolutely. Trident is the big fault line for the Labour Party. And I think what is interesting about going choosing to do this CND march, it's firmly sending a signal to the PLP, this fight is here to stay. And what's interesting, you know, we the reshuffle, we saw Maria Eagle moved, we saw Emily Thornberry brought in. And let's not overlook the fact we have Damien McBride back in the fold to push through the anti-Trident message. So it's absolutely clear that Trident is going to be the absolute kind of contested ground for the Labour Party. We haven't actually discussed it on this podcast about the return of Damien McBride, who, if our listeners don't know, was spin doctor to Gordon Brown over many years and left in a whole ball of scandal to do with um, making up lies about Tory politicians when he was working in Downing Street. You know, if you're on the pro try, if you're on the anti-trident side of the issue, you must think this is brilliant news because he's going to go toe to toe with the best people on the other side of the debate in the Labour Party. But it does rather destroy that straight-talking, honest politics slogan. Oh, absolutely. I think certainly political journalists will be cock-a-hoop at the idea of Damien coming back and obviously people who support his view on Trident. But for the rest of the PLP, I think there is fear and loathing that has been struck into the heart. I think he was a very effective but very vicious attack dog. And I think lots of MPs are already worried that, you know, how ugly is it going to get? How brutal is it going to get? And how personal is it going to get? And Philip, the quicks, because as you said, there's two Labour parties in that sense. But again, on the Trident issue as well, you you must think it's remarkable that Labour is coming back to this issue again. You know, if Ed Miliband had remained, was still leader then, essentially, it would have just sort of gone on through. But you've got this divide between Tom Watson Labour's deputy leader, who is very pro-Trident, pro-protecting the jobs associated with Trident, and then the whole Corbynite gang who are very anti You know, does the, Is there any sense the public cares about this debate? No, except I think it will confirm in the minds of many. I mean, I think to be fair, there are there is a legitimate argument to have about Trident. I have heard senior serving generals in the British armed forces say, actually, maybe it's not the best way to speak spend the money. Maybe we should be spending it on conventional warfare, on cyber capacities, special forces. So there is an argument to be had. The problem in the Labour Party is, and the problem is that for Jeremy Corbyn, it's become, if you like, the, you know, the overwhelmingly most important emblem of his brand of sort of leftist politics. So from his point of view, he has to win for Many in the Labour Party, it's become, I think probably, this is a bit of a pity, a sort of emblem of modernisation. So you have irresistible force, immovable object, and there's going to be a very, very big bang when they meet. And I suppose, finally, Aisha, the problem is we hit after the referendum, June the 24th, you know, let's say it's a Remain vote, 55-45. Alan Johnson has played his very public role, Trident's still bubbling along, but the Labour Party will have just been absent in a way. And then you go into the summer and you hit September and it just all feeds into that idea that Labour is not really a functioning party at the moment. Um, what happens at the conference then? Because that's set to be the place where a lot of these debates are going to be played out. Well, I think conference is going to be very, very difficult for the Labour Party this year because what has been proposed are some quite explosive rule changes, for example, in terms of 
how party staff will be hired, possibly removing um, policy control from the shadow cabinet and given back to the NEC, and some quite big rules on if there was a leadership challenge, the leader automatically getting back on the ballot paper, which is absolutely crucial. And of course, Trident will rumble on. So I think we are going to enter the summer and the autumn with a lot of aggression within the Labour Party. And I think we are going to have two tribes going to the Labour Party conference. Well, thankfully, we'll have a lot of aggression in the Conservative Party as well, I'm sure. So it can just be a season of aggression across all of British politics. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all my guests for joining. And we'll be back next Saturday for the next instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.